Emma Wildwood is a senior lecturer at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. She speaks with us about the history, growth and vibrancy of the Christian church in Africa. Emma, your faith story. Uh, how did Christianity become a part of your life? Well, Christianity was a part of my life from the moment I was born. Uh, my parents were committed Christians. My father was a vicar in the Church of England. But I think I very quickly made the decision that this was something that I I wanted to follow myself. So at the age of six, I agreed to follow Jesus Christ and have done ever since. It's very early. It's very early. Um, I was challenged by a, a friend who was maybe four years older than me um, after a meeting at which we'd been presented with the gospel. And she said, are you a Christian? And I knew enough to say that, no, I've, maybe I'm a bit too young. And she said, no one's ever too young. So I took myself off to my bedroom and remember. What a wonderful story. That. Emma, did, did you go through a period of time later in life where you had to go from a, a faith as, a, as a, a young child to something that was kind of more robust as an adult? Yeah, I think uh, two periods. First, I think around the age of 16, when most teenagers are kind of exploring uh, life and questioning things, I went through a, a, a period there where I was very doubtful and, and very uh, lacked a lot of confidence and you know through an experience of the Holy Spirit I was given um, a renewed sense of conviction. I think another time was studying theology. Um, it always uh, makes you question um, and that was a very important time. Perhaps the third time I can think of was living in sub-Saharan Africa during times of violence and really having been confronted for the first time with people losing their lives, losing their livelihoods, lo losing members of their family, and really questioning uh, issues about the evil, the amount of evil in the world. And uh, I think for a while that, that threw me. Well, can we just talk about both of those just for a sec? Mm -hmm. Some people might be surprised to hear that when you're studying theology, the mm -hmm. study of God as it were, mm -hmm. that you would end up in questions. Mm. Why would that be the case? I think Christian faith is about our ultimate being and meaning. And studying theology is an opportunity to really examine that up close and to think, who is God? Where does God act in the world? And what's my relationship to God? And those questions are not easy because we know that the world is uh, fallen, it's flawed. Uh, and so working out how God can love and yet there is so much sorrow and suffering in the world is one, just one of the big questions I think they have to answer. Beginning to have an adult understanding of how uh, our, the Bible came to be, how it's a, a series of books written over a, a, some considerable time is another set of questions that is, I think was important for me to think through and to understand better. So interesting because you're dealing with that in theory, especially that question about suffering in the world, mm. and then you end up in sub-Saharan Africa mm. and you are, you're dealing with it not as a theory, but as a day-to-day -day occurrence. Mm -hmm. How did that go for you? Um, I think it's very painful, I mean, being alongside uh, parents who were, uh, whose children had died um, and seeing uh, conflict bubbling up and people feeling powerless against uh, conflict. 
What was extraordinary for me was actually the resilience of my Congolese friends, their um, encouragement uh, to each other, their utter conviction that they were rooted in Jesus Christ and that the Bible gave them a way through this situation. And so um, I, I remember them encouraging me with you know, verses of scripture, even writing letters at one point when we were, had been asked to leave the country, writing letters. And they were in the, the midst of um, a protracted a series of wars really and you could say it has continued until today and yet it was their um, faith that uh, encouraged me and enabled me to see things in a different way. Isn't that intriguing isn't it that you, you come as the university educated um, uh, person from the west and yet these people perhaps with a slightly simpler faith from an, a learning perspective is speaking into your life. Uh, oh absolutely and I think this was something we were um, we were told by people who had spent time uh, in other parts of the globe um, before we went uh, to DR Congo, um, it was Zaire then, um, and it was very, very true for us uh, on all sorts of levels. I mean, uh, we weren't always uh, in the midst or on the edges of conflict. A lot of the time our life was relatively peaceful there, but again, the, the hospitality, the generosity um, of, of people around us, um, their willingness to share their lives, uh, all spoke to us very much of um, the love of Jesus. We want to explore why you were in Africa. Mm -hmm. So you, did, you, you, you studied uh, African Christianity or the movement of, of Christianity into Africa. What, what sparked that interest? Why the interest there? I had a very inspiring uh, lecturer actually here um, who had been in Malawi for a number of years and had been in the kind of independence movement in Malawi and he was always very ener energetic in his lecturing and he made me understand that African Christians had chosen that path themselves. Up until that point I'd been interested in other parts of the world, I'd, I'd visited um, India and Pakistan, I had um, supported different projects and so forth but I was always a little bit uh, worried about this colonial presence that Britain had had and a bit uncomfortable about that and um, actually learning more made me realise that um, although the, uh, the colonial presence was an unfortunate one and in many ways a destructive one, the uptake of Christianity was not uh, simply because of that colonial presence that uh, African people had made that decision for themselves. Uh, we recognise now that this sort of numerical demographic centre of Christianity has moved from the Northern Hemisphere to the South and to places like Africa. Give us a picture of the size and scope of Christian faith in Africa, just the, the number of people and the, the, the place of influence in Africa. Yeah. Um, there has been a really rapid growth in the Christian church in uh, 1910, for example, so a hundred years ago, there were um, pockets of Christian communities around the coast. Some of those, like um, the community in Ethiopia, 
had been uh, a Christian community since the very early point of Christianity. But most of those pockets were relatively new. Um, a hundred years later, most of sub-Saharan Africa um, is Christian and there are very many different Christian churches and Christianity has been part and parcel of public life. Um, it's uh, Christians uh, run hospitals, they run schools, they're involved in politics. Um, it's very important to every aspect of uh, society. You mentioned Ethiopia and that just reminds us that Christian faith has in, has come to Africa right from the very beginning in, in Acts. So what, are the, what were the different stages of Christian faith coming to Africa? Well, um, for the first few centuries um, of uh, the Common Era, Christianity was very strong along what we call North Africa. In some ways at the time it was just the south of the Mediterranean. Uh, so we, there was a, a strong Christian church in Alexandria, um, in, in, in Carthage, we have what perhaps the premier early um, theologian Augustine of Hippo uh, in Hippo, which was in North Africa. Um, we have uh, a strong kingdom among, in, in Nubia, which is now in the, the Sudanese area, uh, as well as Ethiopia. Um, with the arrival of Islam, these communities uh, faded away, some of them quite rapidly, um, some of them uh, very, very slowly, uh, leaving the Coptic Church in Egypt and the Ethiopian Orthodox Church uh, remaining. However, um, when the Portuguese developed their mercantile empire, they started visiting uh, points along the African coast and with them came uh, missionaries and one of the largest uh, new kingdoms, Christian kingdoms in Africa, was in uh, a place called Congo, so not, a, not quite the same as the Congos we know today, but that region of uh, Congo Brazzaville, DR Congo and Angola, that western uh, seaboard, and it was a strong Christian kingdom for two or three centuries, but again by the 19th century, uh, it had almost faded out of existence. So, and that was what, 15th, 16th century that they? Yeah. And they were mostly, obviously, the, what we would now refer to as the Catholic Church yeah. and the monastic movement around the Catholic yeah, Church. Yeah, that's correct. Why do you think it faded away? I think it faded away because it was very closely associated with a partic particular kingdom. And as that kingdom's fortunes changed and diminished, so uh, Christianity diminished. So um, its influence, if you like, on society was very important in its spread, but it also affected its demise. So those first two st starts, as it were, yeah. <laughs> were not particularly successful. And you said we've come to the 19th century and now it seems to explode. So what happens? Yeah. Well, again, uh, we have a wider story about European interest in the world. Uh, some of this is exploring, it's finding out about the world. Some of this is uh, economic, how can we trade with the world? And uh, there were a, a movement started uh, in Europe that said, actually we need to spread 
our Christian gospel throughout the world. And this became very important. And at the time, it seemed quite radical. People hadn't really thought that that was their business. If God wanted to spread the gospel, God would find a means to do it. And the fact that uh, we Christian people might be the means uh, was something that seemed quite new. Uh, and this was towards the end of the 18th century, but it quickly uh, gained momentum. And when you say Europe, what, what places in Europe were the motivating? Well, this was uh, the Protestant Europe at this, this time. So pietists um, were early missionaries actually to, to India. Um, the UK, Britain was also a very important part of this. Um, and uh, a number of different denominations uh, became very active. So by the end of the 18th century, you have the Baptist Missionary Society, you have the London Missionary Society, which is kind of congregationalist, and you have the uh, Church Missionary Society, which is largely Anglican, although um, they actually, their first missionaries came from the, the German pi pietist community. In the research I've done that, you know, with around people like Livingston and others in different mm. parts of the world, the London Missionary Society seemed to be um, quite influential. What do you know about them? Well, London Missionary Star Society started in the 1790s. Um, it was a group of what we call non-conformist uh, people who gathered together and said, we, we, we want to follow what the Baptist Missionary Society has, has set us to do. And they were incredibly influential. And I think one of their um, strengths was that they weren't part of the British establishment in the same way that the Church of England was. So this was before uh, non-conformists uh, could uh, go to an English university. They could go to Scottish ones, of course. Um, it was before um, they could take up certain professions. And so they always had this edge on uh, what the British establishment thought. And they really were uh, very influential in the Pacific, in Southern Africa, um, in other parts of Asia, uh, in China. And they were very much, uh, the LMS was very much uh, paving a way lo long before, certainly in Africa, um, Britain was interested in um, gaining territory. For a long time, Britain didn't want to gain territory in Africa because it had enough on its plate with its territories in, in India. Were the groups going into Africa, was it pretty much ad hoc? Was there a planned, you know, you do this area, you do that area? How did these missionary groups, as, they got, as we moved into the 19th century, how did they approach Africa from a missions point of view? Yeah. Um, those early uh, mission societies did communicate with each other, but by and large there, was, there wasn't a, a, a plan, a strategy, how we can do this. Um, there was uh, an appeal to supporters for resources. There was um, uh, looking around to see, you know, how they could actually get to which part of the African coast. Um, perhaps one of the biggest drivers, though, in the planning that they did was around the issue of slavery. 
because to be a missionary um, at the end of the 18th, early 19th century was to be an abolitionist. And a lot of the desire to uh, take the Christian gospel to Africa was about repairing a great wrong. And we see this time and time again. Um, the, those people who were missionaries were also um, supporting the move to end slavery. And um, they saw their missionary endeavors as doing just that. So one of the very, very first um, projects by a number of political leaders who were supporting these early missionary societies was to um, facilitate ex-slaves from the Americas to return to Sierra Leone. Um, these were people who were already Christians, they were already uh, freed, um, they were wanting to make connections in order that they return and some meetings in London allowed uh, people who had settled in Nova Scotia to move back to Sierra Leone and to start a new community in a place called Freetown. And when they did, it was like they brought faith with them. They weren't being sent there as missionaries. They, these were um, Africans returning home, yeah. as it were, and that, that encouraged and developed faith. Yeah, I mean, the stories are that they, they returned, they arrived in Freetown singing Christian hymns about, uh, um, that talked about the Exodus and, and, and the Promised Land and those kind of stories. So they were very much seeing themselves as returning to the land that pro God had promised them. They immediately set up their own community with their own churches. A lot of them were Methodists and Baptists. Um, and but the, perhaps the biggest mission society in Sierra Leone was the Church Mission Society, so the Anglican Missionary Society. So we also ended up with a, a strong Anglican church. And over a couple of generations, as these recaptive communities um, developed and strengthened, they also spread out through Africa and um, taking the gospel with them. If you look at places like uh, Korea and Japan, there was, there was actually, when the, when the Christian message first came to those places, there was um, violent opposition, so the people were martyred and lost their lives. Now, Africa is a massive nation, <laughs> but was there, was there the same sort of um, violent response to missionaries? There was a range of responses, I think we could say. Um, there was indifference. <laughs> yeah. Irritation. Um, there, were, there was occasional violence. Um, in this particular case of um, Africans from Freetrack Town, often called the Saro, uh, trading into what we now call uh, Nigeria, that area, uh, they were going back to their own people, to trade with their own people, and they took Christianity with them. And in some ways they were accepted as uh, traders, as having these links. And um, although it took some time, they did influence uh, both, not just the trade, but also Christianity. Sometimes it depended on the ruler. Mm. There's a very interesting case of Bonnie State where, um, there are two rulers vying for power. Um, and 
one ruler is saying we need these Christian connections, we should be interested in this new religion because it clearly brings, it's clearly powerful because we can see its trading influences. And the other uh, leader said, no, we should eschew this and go back to our traditions. And the person promoting his leadership on, if you like, a Christian ticket, won out. And so therefore um, influenced uh, the way in which that state accepted Christianity. But there was a bit of violence between these two leaders because they were wor working out who was going to be most influential. In a place uh, like Nigeria, my understanding is that you had missionaries had come in and there was influence. But there was greater influence when there was a shift from the missionary leader to the local leader mm -hmm. and, and the indigenous church, as it were. And, and sometimes in that process, there was a bit of conflict with the missionary to the local church. You know of many places where there was, where that changeover wasn't actually very smooth? I mean, it depends when the changeover happened, I think. So I think when th there was missionaries, many missionaries had the idea that they were there for a period of time and then once the church was self-supporting, self-governing, uh, self-propagating, they would, they would leave. But over the course of decades, they found it really difficult to let go. And they, European missionaries would say, oh, I don't think the Africans are, are quite ready. And there was a real paternalism that embedded itself uh, in the missionary movement. Um, this sense that people weren't ready, that they hadn't, that they weren't properly equipped and, and so on and so forth. And where that was particularly deep-seated, um, African Christians often set up their own churches. The churches that have, have grown prodigiously across Africa are mostly indigenously run, aren't they? Uh, Today, um, almost all churches in Africa are indigenously run. We have a term, the African uh, indigenous or initiated churches, for those churches who made an early move to do their own thing, if you like, and to think about how they could worship God drawing on some of their uh, previous traditions. So um, often using water in worship, not just for baptism, or even milk or things like that as, as signs of, of blessing, um, but also reading the Bible differently. So developing liturgies around uh, mountains and rivers that represent Zion or Sinai or the Jordan. Um, but even those mission initiated churches are uh, run by uh, African men and women today. They're pretty vibrant. Yes, very vibrant and um, the Pentecostal movement has had a huge impact in sub-Saharan Africa. So there are many uh, churches where um, the, the, an awareness of the power of the Holy Spirit is very, very important where uh, that is often immediately seen through vibrant worship uh, and um, is also seen through a lot of community action. How did you find it? So you, you come from um, 
an Anglican background, mm -hmm. <laughs> studied, end up in a, a difficult situation. How was the worship experience and church community experience for you? I think for me there are a number, there are a number of things that were very important to me. Um, the, I loved the warmth and the vibrancy of the worship. Um, I felt uh, welcomed by Christian community. Sometimes the services were very, are very long, <laughs> so that can be a, down, a downside. Of okay. um, but to see uh, churches are often, at least uh, when I was living in Congo, a lot of the churches were too small, so people were squeezed into tiny spaces um, and they were overflowing on the outside. And I think that gave a sense of joy and excitement. One of the other um, elements that was particularly important in Congo, but you see elsewhere, is the role of choirs. Um, uh, young people sing, they make music, they write their own songs, they share it with neighbouring choirs. Um, the town I lived in um, often had a, a choir concert in which all the church choirs would come together and sing um, there was an element of competition who <laughs> who were the best singers or who'd written yep. the best song um, but these make a huge contribution to the worship of the church so as well as the congregational singing um, there are often several choirs who take part uh, on Sunday morning or with their different styles um, you might have the children's choir the youth choir the uh, male a cappella choir, the Mother's Union choir, and so on and so forth, all joining in worship. So you are there for seven years in Africa and you come back. What's the legacy in your, even your own Christian life now, out of that time? Yeah. I suppose one of the most important things has made me appreciate the variety of Christian life. Um, to see the richness in traditions that I didn't know before, to appreciate that people worship in very different ways, perhaps in the way that I would prefer to worship myself. Um, since coming back, I um, was part of an ecumenical church plant, and that was really a, an exciting thing to be involved with. Uh, it was in a new town, and so people were moving in for the very first time, and we were creating community uh, in the church and many people were, um, had come from all over the world so we had quite an international community and to think about how to make people feel at home in that setting to know that they might be familiar with different patterns of worship and to try and share that amongst ourselves I think was something that I learned from Congo and um, at one point we had a Syrian Orthodox church um, using our building, worshipping in Maliamam, and I enjoyed going to their services and seeing this very ancient uh, form of worship, even though I couldn't understand a word of it. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things you mentioned before was you weren't really that interested in, in at first in Africa because of the thought of that this was colonialism. With all your study, thinking, reading, and even your seven years in Africa, how do you see colonialism now in its relationship to mission? Yeah, I think I tend not to talk about colonialism, but think of it as different colonial strategies and practices. Um, 
historically, the, what we call the scramble for Africa, um, was just that. European powers had power games in Europe and they placed them on the African continent. Often there wasn't much of a strategy and certainly as far as the British were concerned, they didn't want uh, colonial responsibilities in Africa to start off with and when they changed their minds, they often did so rapidly. There was no plan. But nevertheless, colonialism changed uh, Africa. It gave the impression to the world that African peoples weren't able to govern themselves. Um, it uh, set a, gave a sense of European superiority. So it has done much damage to the way we think of Africa as a continent, I think. And we're only beginning to look at this in new ways. As regards mission, there's a complicated story, I think. Many uh, missionary uh, endeavours started before the colonial era. They were not particularly interested in their government taking over parts of Africa. But some of them became quite interested in that because they thought the most important thing they were to do was to share the gospel. And if they could find uh, a government that would allow them to do that, uh, that would give them security and stability to do that, that would be great. And if that was their home government or another European government, that was very convenient. And to the extent that uh, the protectorates of Uganda and Malawi, as it is now, um, came into being because missionary supporters in, in Scotland and England lobbied the British government for these protectorate status. So there we have a very clear uh, connection between colonialism and uh, missionary endeavour. In some ways there's no one colonialism, there's lots and lots of ways in which it, it played out. So you, ca you can't sort of say, well, the missionary movement into a place like Africa was just colonialism from, from uh, wealthy, powerful Western nations. It's far too complicated to say that, uh, historically speaking, uh, and it kind of does an injustice, I think, to uh, Christians uh, in Africa because it assumes that they have not that they haven't become Christians on their own terms, and I think that's what worries me about some of uh, the, the scholarship that talks about. Uh, the colonialism of consciousness, that Africans' consciousness was taken over um, because it doesn't really give agency mm. to African peoples. Mm. I think there's something else that we also ought to remember is that Sub-Saharan Africa largely became Christian after political independence. So before political independence, during the colonial era, uh, there was a great deal of influence of Christianity, uh, but in terms of the sheer numbers, that happens after independence. Wow. So for you, how is Jesus the game changer? I think for me personally, in some ways, Jesus has always been part of my life. I'm very fortunate 
that um, that is the case. And so in some ways he hasn't interrupted in the same way as he might for others. But there's no doubt that my life would be entirely different uh, if he had not been part of it. It's pulling me out.